coast to coast, border to border, and around the world. It's time for The Bill Alexander Show. The Bill Alexander Show is a guest-driven program where the topics are diverse and entertaining. Laugh and learn while you listen to one of the best hours of online radio. Now, here's your host, Bill Alexander. Hi, everybody. Yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill, and welcome to The Bill Alexander Show. It is a pleasure to be back again. And this person we've actually had on the program twice, but the first time we had her on the program was November 9th, 2021. And who am I talking about is Victoria Valentino. And she was a former Playboy Playmate, which is why we had her on the program the first time. And the second time we had her on, we were talking about her being a Cosby survivor. Well, today we're going to be talking about her book. Now, as I told you, Victoria... Welcome to the program. So glad to have you back again. But as I told you before we came on, I was cringing when I listened to the first program I did with you because I don't think I realized who you were and what you were going through at the time in 2021. And I was more worried about your photo spread in 1963. And then we get halfway through the interview and you start talking about what else was going on? And I'm sitting myself going, oh, my goodness, what an idiot I was because I didn't realize who you were. And again, it's so great to have you back on the show again. Well, who am I then? <laughs> You're an author. I, I hate to... <laughs> You're a survivor. And, the, and, and I hate to say this, but least of all, you're a Playboy playmate. Ah, I think if you rank it in order, you need to you need to put that down here. So, (laughs) well, you know, it's funny. I've I've had that um, happen to me different times. You know, I walking my dogs around the block and then a neighbor who I've often stopped and talked with as I go around the block. You know, he's out working in the garden. And one day um, after, you know, many circles around the block over the years, Um, He said, I know who you are. And I thought to myself, when I just, you know, assumed that he meant uh, me as a Cosby survivor because I was in the news a lot. Right. um, I just went on with that dialogue. and, And it dawned on me later that I didn't ask them, well, who am I then? Who do you think I am? Because I just assumed Right. And, you know, um, what we learned in nursing school was when you assume it makes an ass out of you and me. And I assume a lot too many times. So I, I you're the first person I tried to <laughs> tried that question out. On. <laughs> I decided, well, the, 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 next time I'm going to do that, I'm going to say, so who am I then? Who do you it, think I it, really am? And the audience doesn't know this and I'll share this, but not only have Victoria and I have talked on the program, we've also talked outside of the program. And right after we did the, the, I think it was the second one, the whole playboy, the Hugh Hefner story came out that was Uh, on A and E. And you were talking to me about that on the phone and how you were talking to one of the producers of it and how they were actually, as you said, skewing it to tell the story they wanted to tell. And it was very interesting hearing it from your point of view, because, again, you said you never had a problem with him, like the other ones who are trying to get their 15 or 20 minutes in the in the spotlight more than they've already had. 
Well, look, everyone has a choice. And um, I mean, obviously, I'm a trafficking survivor. So I've also heard that from other people saying, well, why didn't you just leave, you know, as a domestic violence uh, survivor and a trafficking survivor? Um, you know, I've had to answer that question personally, and I've asked myself that. So, you know, when I say we have a choice, uh, in certain circumstances, maybe we don't have a choice because we're entrapped, either psychologically, emotionally, or physically. But um, when it came to Hef, we all knew what he stood for. Right. And so I don't know necessarily if his um, if if the women involved with him on a long term uh, relation in a long term relationship um, had any idea of of the extent of you know whatever his proclivities were you know um, and. I, you know, or the drugs, I obviously you start to do drugs and then you get drawn into a lot of stuff that you may have not allowed in your life prior to that. But drugs have a tendency to eliminate healthy boundaries. Right. So or maybe you're financially dependent on someone or emotionally, you know, you're in love and what have you. And and uh, it is hard to extricate yourself. So I don't want to be judgmental, given the fact that <laughs> any more judgmental than I am as a human, um, you know, but but um, when I was originally approached by those producers, they told me that they were trying to produce um, an overall objective view of playboy the life of playboy the playmates everybody's mm -hmm. involvement and his life well that sounded good and then i started so i i gave them a whole list of playboy uh, playmate contacts and people who had worked at the mansion who you know were always open to talking about their experiences there and um then I started hearing from some of the other gals that, oh, no, they were they were trashing Hef. This whole thing was all about trashing Hef and Playboy and this and that. And I hadn't seen any evidence of it until the uh, series was aired. And the particular people that were highlighted, I knew, were people who were disgruntled right. already. Uh, for various reasons and didn't feel that they had previously been heard and acknowledged. And this was the opportunity to, to be in the spotlight and talk about their grievances. But there were also many of us who knew what that life was about and, you know, chose not to participate or if they chose to participate i i wound up going to one party after the party in 1965 the first time hef came out from chicago and i was met at the door with one of his cronies in a bath towel and i did get involved with that little um party on the round bed 
and I hated every minute of it. Mm-hmm. Pardon me, I've got dogs, so. Oh, no problem. If I close the door, they're going to be scratching at the door. If I leave the door open, they're going to be, you know, doing what they do. Yeah. So just hope you don't mind. We'll roll oh, with we're, it. We're fine. And uh, so, so you know, but but once I I knew what that was, I knew not to go back because right. I that wasn't what I wanted. Right. Um. And I I have to admit the first time i i did that it went to that party the first party was um you know just a very nice cocktail party you know with thin lapels narrow tie cocktails jazz you know Mm -hmm. in his penthouse at the top of our club on the sunset strip and so when i was invited to the party after the party i just thought it was because i was a playmate and they were narrowing the party down to you know more of an elite group Right. And lo and behold, you know, I discovered that was not the case. It was an orgy. Right. Um, and, you know, not to say that I didn't participate in the free love experience of the 60s. I did. Um, it was not love, you know, in retrospect. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I spent a lot of time feeling very lonely mm-hmm. in groups of people and uh, wishing for something more authentic and and real um commitment kind of thing and family and what have you but those were the times we lived in um so years later after i met hef again uh, in my 50s and we were at a glamour con and he came around on saturdays at one o'clock with his cameraman and his uh lights and he would go from table to table and greet each one of us and he leaned in to give me a a kiss on the cheek and I said darling you know the last time I remember seeing you my legs were over your shoulder (laughs) and he laughed and he said I remember that and we both had a good laugh about it because as we got older we could look back on it and see the amusement of it and I don't know maybe who can get their legs up that high anymore? <laughs> uh, you know, but, you know, I mean, it was just kind of, you know, a, uh, a nostalgic, humorous, right. old folks kind of memory of when we were young. And um, they posted a little blip of that anecdote in the Loose Lips column <laughs> in the magazine. Um, but, you know, I mean, I can smile about those things now, but, you know, it wasn't something that made me happy at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I saw the gals talking about all of that stuff, you know, at a certain point, it's like, okay, but, you know, you had so many other positive things that happened as a result of those connections and the friendships that we still have, um, and, and and a lot of the fans. You know, when I was very young, I didn't appreciate um, what the fans really meant to us. And when I got older and stepped back into the Playboy social circle, nobody wanted to sleep with me because I was an old broad by then, and I was free then just to enjoy the buffet. And 
you know, and, and the parties and, and dressing up and rubbing shoulders with megastars and, and, you know, being a celebrity myself in, in Playboy right. circles anyway. But um, I also saw how much we had meant to the fans mm-hmm. over the years. And, and that was a, that was a, an experience that I think I had to grow into. Um, because a lot of the guys were Vietnam vets. Oh, well, yeah, I can understand that. Um, and so within, it meant with, a lot to them to have us, our centerfolds folded inside their helmets mm-hmm. when they went into battle. Right. And, um, you know, and, and glamour girls and GIs have always been a team, you know, always. And so you you start having a different understanding and a deeper appreciation of the relationship you know if you're an entertainer you have to have an audience right Right. exactly it's synergistic Mm -hmm. so um about a year ago i had the opportunity to speak with the uh the two hosts of the bunny chronicles echo johnson and karina harney and we were we were talking about that and they were also giving me the same type of perspective that you just gave Oh, how nice that you knew what you were getting into. You knew what it was and the stories they tell were quite interesting also. But, and I spoke to, um, oh, why her name just escaped me and her book sitting right in front of me. Um, and I can't read the spine the way it's listed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'll grab it. Oh, go for it. (laughs) Yeah. Deborah Driggs. I knew that was Deborah. But uh, we've also talked about it, and it was quite interesting hearing their perspectives yeah. on the way that worked and everything else. So I just wanted to wanted, wanted to uh, bring that up before we got started talking about the book, which is Dirty Diamonds, The Repurposed Life of a Playboy Icon and a Cosby Survivor. And now, here it is. What's special about the book now that was released? What, it's been two years now since the original release? It was released actually last year. Oh, last year. Okay. And it was published for two months. And um, I was traveling, so I didn't get to see the hard copy uh, for about two weeks after it was published. And when I saw it, I was very thrilled initially just to see it in hard copy, you know, and have a tangible product you know after all the the work i had done but then as i sat down and started thumbing through it i started seeing a lot of typos a lot of errors and i had paid a lot of money to this particular uh, editor and i asked for it to be corrected and she refused unless i paid her more of course (laughs) And but they were her errors, you know, so um, we had a lot of back and forth and the book was then unpublished out of spite, actually, uh, on her part. And uh, so I had to go through attorneys, cancel our contract. It was a contract for three books. And after seeing the product that she had put out on one book, I couldn't really trust her 
you know, vision of what quality was, you know, right. for, for more book, books. So anyway, so I, I then started, you know, looking around for somebody else who could go through the book with me and fix all the typos and tighten it up and make it the product that I, I wanted to put out. And since then, I have found a wonderful, wonderful editor um, who specializes in memoirs. And uh, she used to be a newspaper woman for 20 years, editor and publisher in Kansas, and closer to my age. So we understand the socio-political arc of, of life, of my life, you know, me born during World War II and living through a variety of social changes. Um, so we, we speak a lot of the same language. And that was very helpful in making the book more... Um, well, just putting it together in a more quality way. And um, and we've also added a few things in terms of uh, a wonderful uh, spreadsheet that one of our support supporters had put together uh, when we all first started going public in 2014 about Cosby. Um, she was um, a gal from Indiana or Illinois, I'm sorry. Uh, and she... Um, had been a big Cosby fan. And then when she started seeing the women getting trashed and she decided she wanted to look into the situation herself. And so she started compiling a lot of data about each woman, how old they were, when the incident occurred, what their careers had been, what had happened to them, uh, what he did afterwards, what they did afterwards. And she started seeing a real pattern. And then she knew he'd done it. Right. And so um, so I asked her permission if I could use the spreadsheet. I've got a renegade fly buzzing around. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> fortunately, he won't sit on my head like Mr. Pence. Um, so um, anyway, so... We used that as, um, you know, to, to, to make the book more comprehensive in terms of it not just being about me. I'm, you know, the microcosm of right. a much bigger story. So, so highlighting all of the women, you know, unfortunately, we only have 58 in here. That was her spreadsheet up to the point where she stepped back. Mm -hmm. Um, but there were 62 of us and um, public and a, a third, a 63rd has come out um, recently. And um, so because of the um, look back laws in New York, New Jersey and Nevada. And uh, the. Um, Adult Victims Act in California that former Senator Joe Dunn wrote, AB 2777, uh, we are now allowed a one-year window of opportunity in which we can seek tangible justice without a statute of limitations restricting us from seeking and hopefully acquiring justice. Um, I've been speaking out for nine years come the 22nd of this November, this month, uh, for free, without any expectation of seeing any justice personally. Um, 
but I, I spoke out. I'm a mother of daughters. I'm a mother of granddaughters and grandsons. And I'm going to be 81 on December 13th. And therefore, um, I feel time is uh, of the essence to leave some kind of legacy for the next generations. And I don't want to just leave uh, a centerfold with uh, right. for, formerly great boobs, um, <laughs> you know, uh, and a formerly flat stomach. But we won't go there right? in detail anyway. But, you know, anyway, so I, um, I, you know, it was very important to me since I, I was a child sex uh, assault survivor, a domestic abuse survivor, a trafficking survivor, and a multi-rape survivor, as well as a Cosby survivor. And um, being, a, being a survivor and having suffered trauma, you know, and, and the results of, of that kind of trauma all my life, you know, when people say, oh, get over it, you know, move on, quit wallowing in the past, or, hmm, sounds like you're being a victim here. No, I was victimized, and there is a difference between being a victim and being victimized. Mm -hmm. And um, PTSD isn't something you can just take a pill for and it goes away and you get up in the morning and you're a brand new person, you know. Um, it's an ongoing um, peeling of the layers, you know, of healing. And um, you're always dealing with it on some level. And if you have children, they have grown up with a mother who suffered PTSD, even though in many cases it was never diagnosed. They were just dealing with, you know, the stuff that I did. And um, my, my behavior, my reactions to different things in life. And then now their children are dealing with the fallout so it's there's generational trauma and uh it's not just an isolated little incident mm -hmm. uh it's not like you know getting an owie on your knee and then it gets a little hydrogen peroxide on it and a band-aid and then you know in next week it's all gone it's not like that trauma is never like that uh, trauma of any kind and we right. know from from Vietnam vets, you know, and I mean, as a nurse, I, I, when I first became a nurse back in, uh, in the early eighties, um, I, I had one patient who was a vet from world war one. Wow. And he was still suffering PTSD. So, you know, uh, we have we have shown a light on PTSD and on women's uh, being victimized, and we're seeing it now with Ukraine, and we're seeing it now in Palestine and Israel. Right. You know, the men are the ones who are going out and doing the killing, and it's the women and the children who are being victimized in the crossfire of men's testosterone-driven violence and need for control and, and power. So that's my speech. <laughs> there are so many directions I want to go in, but yeah. before we do that, um, I need you to give a brief synopsis of how you met Cosby. 
because I know the story because you've told it to me multiple times and it's just very interesting that not only are you a victim, but you were protecting someone else in that room at the same time. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Um, who, who, when I spoke to her in 81, thought I was being negative when I brought up that night and uh, didn't want to talk about it because she thought he was a wonderful person mm -hmm. and guest starred on uh, one of his shows in 86. Oh, and okay. our incident occurred the end of 69, end of December, somewhere in there. It's kind of fuzzy because I was still walking underwater and traumatized after my little boy died. So um, uh, we have not had any conversation about it. You know, just moving on. And, um, but I was the collateral damage mm -hmm. and, um, does she, does she, and I, and, and I know this is tough to look back on, but she's the one that took you out. She's the one that introduced you to Cosby. No, she is not. Oh, okay. I thought, I thought that, um, when you met him at the table that night that she was with you. Well, she was, but she oh, okay. wasn't, I, I had initially met him uh, on an audition oh. it was supposed to be an audition on the lot where he was doing his show and um my my former bunny trainer francesca who i was living with after my son died because i was incapable of functioning on my own at that time and i was running out of my advance money for my contract with capitol records i was recording an album and uh that derailed my career of mm -hmm. course in as a as a recording artist so um i was living with her and her husband and children in laurel canyon up off of hollywood boulevard and um so she knew i i needed to get a job and um so she said i know bill cosby you know and he all those guys used to play the playboy club circuits you know all the comedians and she worked in the living room area and it was kind of a lounge area where a lot of the guys did stand up and you know it wasn't the the big showrooms but they would all come down and hang out and anyway and and um so she uh set up an appointment with him to meet me and hopefully get a job on his show. And so I took the picture of my son, uh, which she handed me as I was on my way out the door. She said, here, take this picture of Tony and show it to him and tell him what happened, you know, and, and I'm sure he'll have compassion and give you a job. He was very good to me when I left Playboy and I needed to go get food stamps, single mom with little kids. And so uh, she felt he was a wonderful person and would, you know, reach out to me in a positive way. So when I got to the guard gate uh, at the studio, instead of sending me to a, a, an audition room, uh, they sent me to his trailer. So he met me at the door of his trailer, which I thought was kind of weird. But then I thought, well, you know, he's a friend of Franz and, you know, this is maybe not a formal meeting. This is a meeting amongst friends. Right. 
And so I walked in, handed him the eight by 10 black and white picture of my son looking straight into the lens, which is a powerful shot with his little 60s afro. And, um, and then I sat down opposite Cosby and he just sat there and he held this picture of my son and looked at it and looked at it. He was just mesmerized by my son looking back at him. And I kind of wonder in retrospect if he didn't think of himself at that age because he was an abused child. Oh. And uh, anyway, what I do when, well, I do it even when I'm not under stress, I talk a lot, but <laughs> but I, I just rattled on and told him what had happened, finding my son at the bottom of my music attorney's swimming pool um, at a party that was being given to celebrate the successful negotiation of my recording contract with Capitol Records. And I rattled on and he didn't look up at me. He just sat there and looked at the picture of my son and sat and sat and I just kept talking and talking. And then I ran out of things to say and he wasn't responding. And I thought, boy, I've sure made a mess of this, you know? Right. And so I realized that I was a basket case and he wasn't going to take a chance on me as an actress on his show. So I just stood up abruptly, took the picture, said, thank you very much, walked out the door. And that I think that was what saved me, actually, um, because since then, I found out that he's assaulted women in his trailer. trailer. Now, I have a question for you. I noticed this before we started talking. Yeah. But on the screen behind you, the third one down, is that a picture of your son? In the center? Um, this one? Yes. When he was a baby. Okay. Yeah. Oops. Oh, I'm going to knock everything over now. Because <laughs> I thought that was him whenever you, before you sat down, because it caught my eye, because I have seen photos of your son, because he passed away at the age of six, correct? Yeah, a week and a half after his sixth birthday. I am mm -hmm. looking for the picture that I handed... Uh, Cosby. It's in my book somewhere. In the new book, it occupies a whole page. Okay. Um, but he, um, well, you can't really see it very well here, perhaps, but this, okay. the this, bottom. Is, this is the picture that Cosby held. I gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And that was a picture of him at his sixth birthday party with his Groucho Marx uh glasses and nose and mustache that was the last <laughs> photograph ever taken of my son leave him with a smile That's like the right. old comedians used to say so uh, um you and again i did not know this because when i was reading your book and every time you mentioned something in the book i had to go to youtube and find a video clip that reference what you said so the cbs this morning story the uh the stuff dealing with the one protester, all this stuff, everything was going to, I would leave the book, go to YouTube and watch it. Wow. And I, I'm, I'm thinking, cause I'm, I'm reading it on a Kindle and I'm thinking she needs hyperlinks. She needs hyperlinks taking us to these things because they're important to the story because it fleshes out the story even more. Yeah. Yeah. Of and, course. And when I when I was reading about your son and that 
and the Capitol Record contract, are there any recordings of you that anybody still has from that? Or did you not start recording yet? No, I my audition piece was uh, I had a backup guitarist by the name of Richard D'Augustine, Dick D'Augustine. He was actually my my boyfriend at the time, but he was an excellent guitarist and he had recorded some 45s. I found I've only recently found out I, I didn't know anything about him other than he was a great guitarist and he was my lover and that was all that mattered. But uh, at the time and he was always there and and uh, he's now passed away, sadly, but um, we recorded uh Sunny Gooch Street from, uh, you know, is Donovan's song, yes. Don Leach. I don't know if you remember that mm -hmm. song, mm -hmm. but it was a wonderful song. And I just loved it. You know, on the firefly platform on Sunny Gooch Street, a violent hash smoker shook a chocolate machine involved in an eating scene. And I just, I loved that song at the time. And that was my audition piece. And so Vic Briggs was my producer and he was the lead guitar in Eric Burden's uh, The Animals, Animals Group. And Vic, strange, sadly, died. Uh, he died, I think, on the day that Cosby got out of prison two years uh, on in 21. Wow. Because I was looking him up. Because I, I wanted to, I had made some, wanted to make amends to him. Um, he left um, uh, Capitol Records and he wound up becoming a Sikh. And taking a Sikh name, he became Vikram Meredith Singh. And uh, he was married to, he his second wife was uh, from New Zealand, I think. I believe. Anyway, um, I found out that he had returned to um, New Zealand and died there of some kind of cancer. He, and he was younger than I, which, of course, at the time I didn't know. Um, but he was um, he he switched and went into playing sacred music and was a meditator and uh, sort of a musical guru after that. Um, and um, so I, I was really very privileged that he had asked me to cut an album, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, so back to uh, back to meeting Cosby again, if you would like to go there. <laughs> oh, I would love to go there. I've been waiting for you to get there. Um, so he. Uh, you know, I, I wound up, my grandmother died, and I wound up moving into her house, the family home in West Hollywood, uh, with a couple of roommates. And Is um, this the one that your uncle built? A great, great uncle. Great, great uncle. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When it was only, when there was only a footpath through a meadow from mm -hmm. Sunset Boulevard near the Strip. Which is in the beginning of the book when you read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to go back to that wonderful time in Hollywood in the 40s when it was, you know, World War II, post-World War II. Times were good then, uh, you know, in Hollywood anyway. They were nourishing and everybody, you know, it was one for all, all for one uh, kind of 
um, sentiment. And um, anyway, so I couldn't afford to rent the house from my mother and uncle and their distant cousin who was part owner in the house at that point. And um, so I got a couple of roommates. And um, so one of the roommates was an aspiring actress or an actress from back east and her boyfriend. And I had sort of a, an interim boyfriend at the time. And we took the house and she wanted to go over to the Cafe Figaro. And I didn't know at the time that Cosby was either a full owner or part owner of that cafe. And it was at that time, it's not in existence now, but it was right on the borderline of West Hollywood and Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. And it mirrored the Cafe Figaro in Greenwich Village, New York, where I used to do my homework. And it was a cleaned up version of it, didn't have the soul, but um, we went over and you could get incredible onion soup and a basket of worm bread. And we scraped our pennies together and shared a small carafe of red wine. And he arrived at the table. And when I first started talking about that night i had pushed everything so far back for so long that it took me a while for you know details to start coming forward again and um i had somehow imagined that she had gone to the ladies room and crossed paths with him at that time and then he came to the table but now i'm not quite sure if that's true or whether i just you know put that together in my memory um piecing these fragments together, you know, but um, I was sitting there crying into my soup. I was having a hell of a day grieving over my child. Mm -hmm. And uh, he walked up to the table and chatted her up. And I didn't look up because I was just sobbing and sobbing. And I, I am not one of those girls who can pretty cry i am an ugly crier mm -hmm. and i didn't want anybody to look at my face you know so i just kept my head down and they were talking and i was tuning them out basically but he already knew my story you see mm -hmm. he had been listening in spite of the fact that he wasn't responding to me right and he said well in those days people called me vicky but don't try it now <laughs> <laughs> and uh so he he said to her, um, Vicky's having a really rough day, and I think it would do her some good to go to this Finnish steam bath down on Santa Monica Boulevard, and I'd love to treat you girls. And I heard that, and the last thing I wanted to do is get undressed and get wet right. and get my hair, my hair frizzes up under steam and rainy weather. So uh, that... It didn't please me either. I just wanted to go home or have another carafe of wine. That was mm -hmm. where I was at. And um, so he said, I would, I would like to treat you girls. And he gave her his direct line to um, on a little scrap of paper and said, when you get finished, give me a call and I'll take you girls to dinner. So, uh, you know, in this business, it's not how talented you are, it's who you know. And he was a big star at that time. So it was kind of 
a career move to to know him and to have him take interest in us. So we did go to get a massage or go to the steam room or something. And um, and then on the way out of the uh, the spa, I said, you'd better give him a call. So she did call him on a pay phone, you know, <laughs> and um, before cell phones. And he said he would send his driver over to, to grandma's house where we were living. And um, we would meet him at this restaurant, which was a, a, a steak restaurant that had just opened. And so it was kind of the new hot spot on the Sunset Strip. And it was right next door to the Whiskey A Go-Go. So, um, so anyway, we went home, got changed. I don't know what we were wearing, frankly. Um, and his driver came and took us to the restaurant and he came up uh, to meet us at the parking lot where the driver arrived with us and took us downstairs from the parking lot into the restaurant. We sat at this kind of banquette, um, this linear kind of seating right near the front door of the restaurant. And so I was sitting here, she was sitting to my left and he was sitting to her left and then it was a steak restaurant and she was a vegetarian. So a lot of the conversation was all about what she could possibly order in a steak restaurant. And he was busy chatting her up and it was clear that he was interested in her. And I was just sort of the excuse, you know, and I didn't care because I wasn't interested in him, you know, and I was just sitting there biding my time until I could get back home and go to bed. And I don't even know what I ordered, but there was a glass of red wine at my plate. And um, he just reached over and put a pill down next to my wine glass and put a pill next to her wine glass. But when he put the pill next to my wine glass, he said, here, take this. It'll make you feel better. It'll make us all feel better. And, you know, I was properly guilted. You know, I, I, it was clear that I was being a wet blanket by right. not participating and not being, you know, a, a, a good audience to his mushmouth jokes, you know, mm -hmm. which I didn't hear very well with all of the noise in the restaurant. And I didn't really find him funny, frankly. So, um, I took the pill. I wanted to feel better. I, you know, I was at a place where they'd said, jump off a cliff or hang yourself from the nearest tree. I probably would have done it, you know? And, um, so then he reached across and put another pill directly in my mouth and directly in her mouth, but he acted as though he was taking a pill himself. And then pretty soon, you know, my head was like flopping into the plate and um, I was feeling spinners right? and uh, feeling nauseated. And I, I think it was me who said, I want to go home. And he said, oh, sure, you know, <laughs> and walked us up the stairs back to the parking lot. And his chauffeur was not there. And I asked him, where's your chauffeur? And he said, oh, he had something else to do. And I remember thinking, well, if Cosby's your boss, 
why would you have something else to, to do. do? Wouldn't you be there for him? And but I didn't verbalize it. But, you know, I thought about it because I grew up with a girlfriend, my um, classmate in fourth grade, whose father was a chauffeur on this big D.A.R.'s estate back in Connecticut. And I knew, you know, that uh, when Miss Richardson called, he jumped, you know, so. Um, he said, I'll take you. Well, we were only a few minutes from my grandma's house and because grandma's was a block and a half south of Sunset and just a few blocks to the west or to the east of where we were on the suns, just below the Sunset Strip. So I figured we'd be home in five. And he pulled out of the uh, the driveway and I was sitting in the back seat. He put her in the front. Um, so my position was pretty clear. And right. uh, and we were just kind of rolling around trying to maintain our equilibrium. We were both totally drugged out. And uh, instead of turning right downhill onto the strip, he took a left and went up into the Hollywood Hills, narrow, winding little lanes, you know, and <laughs> rolling around. And I'm trying to keep from throwing up in this big stars. Mercedes, I think it was a Mercedes he had. A gray or something like that and uh and uh, and she was sitting in the front seat rolling around too and i just had this this feeling you know i don't know if you've ever had this experience but where your face feels like like your face is really hot but you've got this cold mask sitting out in front of your face you know, and, and you're just, you've got these spinners going and you just can't control them. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what I was experiencing. So I kept thinking, why is he going up this way? And then I kept thinking, well, I know my grandma's street connects to Nichols Canyon after you cross over Hollywood Boulevard. And I'm thinking he's the big star now. Maybe he doesn't want to drive down on the strip and have everybody see him with girls in the car. And I don't know. I just, you know, you try to piece excuses together. Why is he doing this instead of the obvious? And uh, thinking maybe he's going up and, you know, there's a back way he can connect to Nichols Canyon and then go down, you know, Genesee. So, uh, then all of a sudden he just stopped the car and I opened my eyes and there we were in front of a whole bunch of kind of, I don't know, they were like townhouses, but it was like a graystone that you'd find in New York, you right. know? And, uh, and he said, Oh, I want to show you girls my awards. And I thought, Oh God, please get me out of here. You know, get me home. I mean, the last thing I ever wanted to care about or see were his damn awards. You know, I just right. wanted to go home. And uh, so he went around the front of the car, opened her car door, reached in, took her out. And I'm thinking, I'll just sit here and let them go in. He's only interested in her anyway. And then he opened the back door and reached in and took me out. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just try to humor the guy, you know, Ooh, uh, aren't they wonderful? And then maybe we can get out of here fast and go home. And it wasn't an, a working office when we got there. It was on the second floor, a little elevator. And 
And uh, as soon as we walked in, it was pretty clear. It was not a, a working office. It was a little studio, mm-hmm. um, low lights and uh, two love seats and this writing desk, you know, kind of fake antique writing desk and a fake antique a uh, little lamp on the on the tape on the desk and a you know a cream I think it was a cream colored French provincial type style phone mm-hmm. and that was on the desk and then there were posters of him and Robert Culp in I Spy on the wall framed and she just went over and sat down on the the love seat next to the wall and keeled over on her side and pulled her knees up you know and passed out and i sat down on the one that was parallel to the front door of of you know which was only about 4 feet maybe 5 at the most from the front door where i sat down and put my head back and i don't know if i passed out or what, but all of a sudden it became very silent. And that was what woke me up. And uh, I looked around thinking I had been abandoned or maybe there was another room they had gone into. And uh, I looked around and I saw him sitting next to her on the love seat, looking down on her like a raptor, mm-hmm. you know, like he was just gonna pounce on that little mouse. And it was pretty obvious what he had on his mind. And I started trying to reach over to distract him, you know, and um, I, my words didn't come out, you know, he was like Frankenstein, you know, and I just kept reaching and, you know, and it was terrible. And he at first ignored me, then he started getting really annoyed. And you could see the annoying look on his face. He was really getting irritated with me, distracting him from his goal. And finally, he stood up and he came towards me and I panicked and I stood up and my legs were rubber and I went to collapse and I grabbed onto him to keep from falling. And the next thing I remember, he was sitting on the love seat where I was and I was on my knees on the floor and he was unzipping his fly. So you know it progressed from there and then when he was done with me he threw me back on the love seat like i was trash and walked out the front door and i said how will we get home and i don't even know how i got those words out and he didn't even look at me pointed to the phone he said call a cab with this disdainful look on his face and um you know then i staggered over and woke her up and she realized immediately be, that we were in peril. And um, we didn't know how we could call a cab because we didn't know where we were. Right. So we started trying to figure out what to do, what to do. And we thought, well, maybe if we called her boyfriend at home, maybe he would have an idea because we were so drugged out, we couldn't think straight. So anyway, we decided on that plan and uh, picked up the phone, no dial tone. So she got down on her hands and knees looking to plug the cord in, thinking it had come out of the jack, Mm -hmm. no phone jack. And it was a cloth cord and the cord was cut. 
So it was a prop phone to start with. There was no phone. So this was clearly his balling pad, you know, where he took people. Right. And uh, so then we, we panicked and we raced out of there and ran down the stairs because we were afraid to take the elevator in case he was in it and we would be trapped again. And then uh, we started running downhill and she got down all the way to the strip and it just happened to be a cab passing and she hailed it. We got in the cab and went home and um, it was it was it was a horrible ending to a day that had already started out horrible for me right um you know um so i never told anybody and i never knew if she actually saw what was happening because she was unconscious you know so i don't know if she opened her eyes and peeked or if she was so unconscious until i woke her up that uh you know she you know but we never discussed it i never told anybody the dirty details it was too humiliating you know so i pushed it out of my head for a long time and i became very suicidal and um and and that was just the last straw broken on my back Mm -hmm. you know and at that point i just packed it all up and uh the prologue of the book is what happened next. So what made you decide to come out and start talking about this happening, that that you made it a, a, a conversation that you were willing to have? Well, when I had heard in 2005 or 2006 On CNN, peripherally, as I was running out the door to work, my daughter was standing watching the news with her morning tea, and we heard that a woman had come out saying that Bill Cosby had drugged and fondled her, and I stopped dead. Mm -hmm. And my daughter, my kids knew something had happened, but we never discussed it. They just knew I thought he was a schmuck. Right. You know, they weren't allowed to watch his show and, you know, all that stuff. So, uh, but we just stopped and we looked at each other and she said, Mama. And I said, My God, that's a pattern. And she said, Well, you should get in touch. And I said, Yeah, yeah, I probably should get in touch. And I was working as a nurse in an adult daycare center in the morning and I was, um, in television and, and radio production at Pasadena City College in the afternoon. And I was I was uh, broadcasting a radio show at that time. And so the whole day I was working busy, but thinking about this in the back of my head. And I let it go finally. By the time I decided maybe I should reach out to that woman whose name I didn't know, because most of them, they were all Jane Doe's at the time. And right. I didn't even know who to contact I remember uh, emailing uh, uh, Anderson Cooper, actually, uh, on the the CNN website, and I never heard back. And by that time, everything just kind of vaporized. Never heard about anything after that. So I let it go. So 2014, the end of November, I was shutting down my computer, checking my email, and Yahoo came up, and I saw that a woman 
Barbara Bowman had accused Cosby of um, raping her, drugging and raping her multiple times. And nobody had believed her for 30 years. And I thought, oh boy, I just, you know, I was in a mind set where I, I just couldn't dig up the past and pick a scab off the old wound anymore at that point. And so I, I was just, I don't want to read the, the details. I don't want to read the details. And I was getting ready to shut down the computer. And all of a sudden, this male black comedian by the name of Hannibal Buress popped up and it said that he had accused Cosby in a stand-up routine in a nightclub in Philadelphia, a comedian making a joke about Cosby being a rapist. Come on, black people, pull up your 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 pants, is what Cosby would say. And Hannibal Buress said, come on, man, you know, you're a rapist, Bill Cosby. And I just, I thought, what? You know, I mean, it just took me a minute to process. And I, well, what the heck, you know, and I, I thought now, I mean, it was just like this little red rocket went off and exploded in my head. And I thought, I have now got to say something to somebody. Who do I talk to? And I started thinking, who can I talk to? Who can I talk to? And I knew a guy who was a journalist at People Magazine. So I emailed him and, you know, I just tried reaching out to the people that I knew and never heard anything back at that night and then i thought in the morning when i woke up it was heavy on my head you know and i went back to the computer and i said who who did barbara bowman speak to and it was the washington post so i went through their website and found the little contact us and blah, blah, blah you know and i i said i i was drugged and raped by bill cosby in 1969 i said possibly early 70 because i couldn't remember all the, you know it was foggy after all those years and uh, and i thought the same thing was going to happen as when i tried to contact anderson cooper so I didn't have a whole lot of faith in, in being heard again. And um, within the hour, Adam Kushner, who was the editor at that time, called me back. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, immediately emailed me back. And, and um, no, he called me. I guess I must have put my telephone number. It's hard to remember. But anyway, he called me. And... Immediately, I got interviewed by um, Scott. Why um, uh, <laughs> I know him very well, and I just went blank. It happens at my age. Heck, and, it happens uh, at my age. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but they um, they're investigative reporters, and they wrote an incredible. Um, Story. And then I that was when I found out that I was not the only person speaking out. And I think there were four or five of us in that article. And suddenly, um, and Scott said, Well, look, you know, you're gonna you're going to um get besieged by the media. And if you don't want um, you know, to speak to them, then we'll field all the calls. But by that time, it was like the lid had blown off 
everything that I had stuffed inside over the years. And I just told him, I said, in for a penny, in for a pound. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, it just, you know, you just don't know when you're going to reach your tipping point and what's going to trigger it. And it was, it was the fact that a woman had not been believed for 30 years, but it took one man to make a joke out of it. And it went viral. And that was my tipping point. So whenever, whenever you, uh, you, I mean, again, you were besieged by the media. You were in the Washington Post. Um, you were everywhere. Did you finally feel at that point in time you were being vindicated for what has happened? Because and and validated. Yeah. Now, so now we go to trial, and you're going from um, from California back to Pennsylvania. Yes. Back and forth, because there was only one woman that could actually file a suit. And that was the uh, the head Andrea of, Constant. The, she was at Temple University, which he sat on the board of. Mm -hmm. And that was the only one. Now, what I thought was interesting, and for my audience, they know this. I sit at the county touching Allegheny County, where oh, the first really? jury was brought in. Yes, I, I sit in Fayette. We touch it just a little bit, but we touch it. And I didn't realize that. So now the story is coming to my part of the country. And then the second jury was from Montgomery County. Yes. So, and that's the jury that convicted him. Yes. Now, you make a comment in the book how it was a circus-like atmosphere outside of the courthouse. Can you mm -hmm. explain what that means? Well, I think a lot of women protesters and activists saw this as an opportunity to voice their protests against misogyny and the patriarchal system and laws that are favoring males, white males, right. and older white males specifically. And that women have had no voice and women have not been believed. You know, uh, we get re-victimized by the system if we uh, call the cops if we've been raped. Well, what were you wearing? Why were you going out with that man? You knew he was married and blah, 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 blah you know, and you're going, well, blah, 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 you know, that doesn't give him the right, you know, to, to, um, to have sex with me when I was in a, in a, a drug state, it doesn't give him the right to be less than a gentleman. Right. You know? And, um, you know, and, 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 you know, as we discovered in the trial, the second trial uh, where he was convicted, we discovered, of course, that he had a very specific pattern and he had very specific fetishes and they were all carefully outlined uh, through expert witnesses and the five prior bad act witnesses my sister survivors right and um so um one of the survivors this great gal from westchester pennsylvania bird millican mm -hmm. uh showed up and she's feisty and wiry and she's just a magnificent human 
And she was out there with her boom box and her um, bubble machine and her lavender shaggy hair. And she was out there protesting Cosby. And initially, oh, don't forget, I thought, she was singing Helen Reddy's I Am Woman. I am woman. <laughs> but at first, I thought she was some homeless woman pushing a shopping cart around the courthouse. And then uh, the next night, she I discovered she was the driver of this big U-Haul truck going round and round the courthouse with a big sign on the back with a, 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 a big finger with Cosby written up the middle digit and the bubbles coming out of the windows and 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 the boom box and I am woman blasting out. And I was there doing an uh, an interview with NBC in front of the courthouse and she's going around and I just looked at her and I went, yeah. And she just gave me this devilishly delighted grin, you know, out the window. And, and then, you know, when we started going to, this was on the weekend, of course. So then when we were actually there showing up in line in front of the courthouse at seven, and she would show up with her signs and her boombox and her bubble machine and her megaphone. And and so on this one day, when so I got to know her anyway and discovered that actually she was a licensed clinical social worker and used to lead groups um, of uh, domestic abusers in the prison system mm -hmm. and 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 had a very um upper upper class family so uh so anyway she um just was out there because she was a believer and she was going to back us up and she was going to put her neck on the line and very creative gal. So this one day while the jury was um, deliberating and we were all kind of hanging out waiting, what, you know, when are they coming back? All of a sudden we heard this rat-a-tat-tat, rat-a-tat-tat. And we're going, oh my God, Cosby's got a band or a parade or something happening. And because um, he had this lineup of, of a lot of the Cosby apologists wearing t-shirts still with the, with the creases in them that said, I don't know, free bill or something. And a, a, a fat Albert lookalike. And they were doing the, hey, 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 you know, free bill. Hey, hey, hey free bill and we're and so everybody's standing out there and all the media with the cameras cnn msnbc inside edition everybody was out there in the tent the media tents and and um and, and so you know i thought for sure that it was going to be a, a parade that he had organized and coming around the corner down the front sidewalk in front of the courthouse there's bird you know, wearing this sign around her neck and she's dancing, you know, it was like 1960s at a love-in, you know, mm -hmm. she's out there dancing and there are four black guys behind her with snare drums and blue metallic masks, you know, like the blue men. Right. That, like, and they're high-stepping, you know, and coming around with their, their snare drums, rat-a-tat-tat and and everybody just started cheering. It was just absolutely magnificent and a perfect answer to the Cosby apologists with the hey, hey, hey. And so um, 
so we were all, you know, we started boogieing to the to the drums and, and it was it just turned into a fiesta, you know, a happening. And um, then Lily Bernard, who was the Afro-Cuban artist, also a sister survivor, um, some black guy on the plaza started accusing her of betraying her race. Mm -hmm. And so pretty soon they were nose to nose. And then all of the media was circling them with boom mics and cameras. And then um, another one of the survivors who was wearing a, a sort of an Erica Badu head wrap um, was approached by one of our other sister survivors, Jewel Allison, who took a different approach and started speaking to her. And she said, you know, she said, if I hadn't been alone in a room with that man, I would be you now. Right. And she started blessing her and they started talking Jesus. And, and pretty soon at the end of it, they were praying together and it was all over. And every time I would pass that woman again in front of the courthouse, she would smile at me and we'd smile at each other and give each other a little wink, you know. So it, it, it was incredible. I mean, it was really, really an incredible, um, I don't know, <laughs> respite from sitting in court all day, straining to hear the judge. The acoustics were terrible in the courthouse. And so, but anyway, it was a magnificent day. Now, basically, after this was all done um, and he was convicted and then he was released, what, two years later? Uh, less slightly less than three years he got a three minimum years. sentence of three years and it was three to ten okay and um and he was registered as a violent sexual predator and but what had happened he continued to appeal right and he refused to go to any of the groups in prison for uh sexual um, predators, I guess, you know, violent sexual predators, and he showed no remorse. So we had just gotten a letter saying that um, they were denying him parole preemptively and because he was coming up for parole after three years. But the previous fall, I think it was the end of November, he had won an appeal and I watched it on Zoom. And one of the justices said, I just don't see a pattern here. <laughs> they were trying to deny the five prior bad act witnesses that were called in that second trial. And of course, I knew all of the girls, you know, right. I knew the stories, I knew they were telling the truth. And we had many of us all been uh, part of the coalition that went up to Sacramento, our state capital, and successfully abolished the statute of limitations in California on rape and sexual assault, testifying in front of the Senate committee. My testimony, a, a soundbite of my testimony is in Gloria Allred's documentary, Seeing All Red, mm -hmm. which is great. And, um, and, so, I mean, you know, we all carpooled and stayed in 
hotel suites and camped out together. And, you know, we, we'd knuckled down together. So we all knew everybody's story and we knew they were telling the truth, but the justices were trying to disprove, you know, and, and, and I just was pretty sure that somebody had gotten paid off because um, the previous DA who had actually been Bruce Castor had been one of Trump's uh, attorneys when he right. was getting, um, uh, you know, another word just went out the window, um, you know, on his first uh, it's, uh, impeachment impeachment. Thank you. Um, and uh, Trump's had so much stuff thrown at him in the court. I don't know what it is either. Half the time. I think well, you can't keep up, you no. know, and, and yeah. And if his attorneys don't uh, suit him, he fires him to get somebody else who will lick his boots, you know? Right. And um, so, so Bruce Castor was his, impeach one of his impeachment attorneys right. the the bumbling one yes but what i found out also was that bruce castor's father was the realtor who <laughs> helped cosby get the Chel his cheltenham mansion in montgomery county where andrea constant was drugged and raped so you know there were too many little things there yeah so anyway, uh, they told us in November that of of 20, I think it was 20 or 19, that he was going to be um, th their judgment would be uh, given in the spring. Right. And so. We had just gotten the letter saying that his parole was de denied and I had just recovered from uh, the second Moderna uh, vaccine and um, I decided to have a, a self-care day and one of our sister survivors um, had died uh, just prior to her achieving justice because she he had raped her when she was a minor mm -hmm. and um then one my one of my bunny trainers had just died that the day before, and I was feeling pretty battered emotionally. And I decided that day I was just going to take a day and not not do anything except take care of me. Right. And I was in my nightgown, had put on my makeup and fixed my hair. God knows why I chose to do that, but that was I guess maybe also for me. And the phone rang. And I thought it was somebody calling, you know, I saw that it was ABC and I thought they want a comment about his parole being denied. And he said, instead, what do you think about Cosby getting out of prison today? And I went, what? <laughs> Excuse me. And then he explained it. And then it hit me. Oh, my God, this is what the result was of right. that hearing back in November. I was outraged. I was sick to my stomach. So now let's move up to June 1st, 2023. You now have your day in court. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Um, last September, the end of September, I was... Uh, being, I, I was getting ready actually to go back east to Connecticut to my 60th high school re reunion. 
And I was notified that I was being given an award from PAVE, Promoting Awareness, Victim Empowerment. And they were holding the ceremony at Raleigh Studios here in Hollywood. And I was expected to show up and give a little acceptance speech. So I was getting ready to do all of that. And I did. And afterwards, there was a little bit of a reception. And this lovely gal came up to me and she said, um, so what do you think about, uh, or did you know that Governor Newsom just signed um, the adult victims law into, in, in, or, or the adult victims bill into law? And I said, no, I didn't know anything about it. And she said, yeah. She said, you have a one year window where there's no statute of limitations. And I went, oh, that's cool. You know, not I. You know, I've been talking for everybody else for for nine years, so I just didn't really take it in, and um, and I just looked at her and I'm trying to process. And she said, "Yeah, um, former Senator Joe Dunn wrote AB twenty seven seventy seven, allowing um, victims of rape and sexual assault in California to have a one year window in which they can seek justice." regardless of their statute of limitations. And I just kept looking at her and, you know, and I not responding. And, I'm, and, and she said, you can sue Bill Cosby for <laughs> raping you in 1969. And all of a sudden tears are just pouring down my face, but I wasn't boo-hooing, you know, it was right. like, I didn't even realize how much I had stuffed inside of me all these years. And, and she said, let me introduce you to Joe. And so Joe Dunn came over and the girls and everybody wrapped their arms around me. Now I'm going to cry. <laughs> and he was so lovely. And uh, in fact, we're meeting tomorrow to have a meeting and talk about updates and stuff. Um, just lovely, compassionate, kind and uh, he is he works with uh, Jeff Anderson and Associates. And that law firm went up against the Catholic Church and the Boy Scouts. They're okay. the, they were the ones who did the big job on the Catholic Church and the Boy Scouts mm -hmm. and got justice for all of those little boys who are now old men. Right. Who were violated. And so um, Jeff Anderson took me on. And uh, I can't tell you how grateful I am because they are, are so supportive and kind and uplifting. And they're always there for you in a heartbeat, you know. And I have my own personal attorney under his umbrella I have his personal assistant who's only a click away. Um, I've got former Senator Joe Dunn, who when I text him, he's back with me in two minutes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and they just keep talking about empowerment and how proud they are that we were so brave and courageous speaking out. And so finally, after 54 years, my dear, I can seek tangible justice for myself. Right. You know, I thought my job was done, you know.
you know, it was enough for me. It was enough for me to speak out for others and to perhaps move the needle on rape culture and 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 change the climate, mm-hmm. you know, where where women will have a, a, a venue, you know, where they can seek justice, some kind of of validation and and where they can be treated with respect and honoring instead of being treated like trash you know and liars and all the stuff you know or made to feel that being raped is less important uh than the rapist who happens to big be the big star on campus you know and they don't want to mess up his his career you know forget that our careers were all derailed you know that our lives were completely plowed under, that we didn't have an opportunity from then on to have a healthy relationship, you know, that anybody that we ever got involved with after that was also either damaged. Right. Because, you know, you relate to people, to other damaged people. So that's never healthy. Or that, um, you know, they can't handle your damage and you wind up getting abandoned or your children have to suffer mm-hmm. uh, your symptoms, you know, and don't know where the source of them, you know, stemmed from, you know, right. what, 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 what caused you to react the way, you know, I mean, I, I it's been an evolution. Um, I remember one time my youngest daughter, um, she had private tennis lessons and she complained. We used to call the tennis instructor eager Ed. And uh, she was in what? Six, fifth grade, sixth grade, something like that. And she said, you know, he always, when he's showing me how to hold the racket, he, she said, I think he, he, it seems like he's holding me too close Mm -hmm. and it makes me uncomfortable mama. And I told her that she needed to speak up because I was still too chicken to confront him. Uh, Now this was, she's 44 now with four children of her own, but I feel like such a schmuck that I didn't have the, the huevos myself to go down. But in going back, I, I realized that I was still afraid of men. Mm -hmm. I was still afraid of con the confrontation on those issues because i had been programmed over my lifetime that if i confronted a man i would get backhanded right you know and i was afraid and i've had that conversation with my oldest daughter now she's going to be 52 in february and you know we've had these conversations where she has recognized and acknowledged to me just this year you know, she said, I, I realized, mom, you know, that that you were afraid of men, mm-hmm. you know, on in certain situations. And, you know, and, and I wanted to be part of the solution by speaking out. I wanted to see that women didn't have to be afraid, you know, and we're getting the rug ripped out from under us now, Bill, um, you know, losing our our. Um, autonomy with our own bodies you know we need to um, not be thrown back into middle ages you know uh, 
we have a right to sovereignty of right. our own bodies. Right. And and who is doing it to us? You know, it, this isn't about morality. You know, they're using morality, abortion or not abortion. Do you believe in abortion? And they tell all the horror stories about, you know, babies taken out alive and right. tissues extracted while the heart's mm -hmm. still beating. <laughs> no, it's not about that. It's about power and control. Right. And women are stepping into the halls of justice. They are stepping into the legislature. They are, you know, becoming Nobel winning uh, scientists and, and engineers and, and physicians. And, you know, and the old guard, the old white men, pardon the expression, um, you know, they're threatened. Oh, yeah. And oh, definitely. And, 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 and how can they keep us, you know, from, from taking our, our intelligence and our wisdom and our ability to nurture and, and to, to try to bring people together instead of getting out and killing them? Yeah. They're afraid. With sticks and stones. They're so afraid of what they are. They're afraid of us because... Yeah. We have a lot of power and intelligence, and we're nurturers, and and we can, um, you know, we can make peace where they don't seem to understand how. You know, they're still caught up in power and control. So this isn't about the the morality of abortion. It's not whether you believe in abortion or not. It's about a woman having a choice about what she wants to do with her own body, with her own life. Mm -hmm. And they still want us barefoot pregnant and in the kitchen. kitchen. Mm -hmm. They want us not educated so we can't think critically. You know, oh, they yeah. want to control us. Yeah. They want us still to be their furniture, their property. Their property, yeah. I did so a stand-up, uh, a little stand-up bit a few years ago with... Uh, <laughs> a little comedy group called the wholesome hecklers okay and i stood there in front of the audience with my with my black silk suit with all the rhinestone buttons and you know and i said to the audience i gave them all the stats you know a rapist is uh prosecuted three out of four times if the victim is male but only one out of four times if the victim is female. So what does that tell you about the worth of a woman in today's society? And so this guy dressed as uh, Hefner steps out from the back and he takes me by the elbow and tries to urge me off the stairs. And I shake him off and I said, darling, I'm trying, to, I'm asking the audience, what is the worth of a woman? Uh -huh. And some shutters on the backstage blast open and they say, two goats, 10 chickens and a pig. And he says, I'll take it. And he grabs me off this and pulls me off the stage. And you hear, you know, yeah. from behind the stage. And I'm going, wait, wait, what about my legacy? Uh -huh. My legacy, you know, and I kicked my leg up, you know, very right. theatrical. But that's what it comes down to. And in this world today, there are still girls traded 
for less than two chickens, you know, and, mm -hmm. and uh, anything, you know, yeah. maybe a, a piece of fabric, you know, sold off at 10 when their mm -hmm. little bodies are incapable of having sexual intercourse oh, yeah. and they're yeah. macerated and they're carrying a baby that they can't even handle, you know, they right. can't even feed themselves, you know, and they're damaged for life, you know, and they're still having their, their clitorises uh, cut off in countries so that they can't have any pleasure and right. be controlled by the men who have, you know, who, yeah. who protect their own pleasure hoard their own pleasure you know this is happening today in this world bill mm -hmm. you know and we have to stand up for it you know women are bright and if there were more women in charge of this government this world you know there would be less damage you know the babies and the women are the ones that are getting killed and raped and beheaded and and destroyed because the men are the ones who can't control their own emotions and want power and control you know, and, and and that's the truth of it. Yes, it exactly is. So when is the book being re-released? Well, hopefully within the next two weeks. Okay. Um, right now we have gone over the pow the um the proof books, and it will be released. Um the paperback and the Kindle will be released on Amazon, but the hardcover with the dust jacket, like a real book will be released uh, from Ingram Sparks. So okay. I have a Library of Congress number with that oh. book. And it can go into real bookstores and libraries, but people are going to have to call their bookstores and order it. Mm -hmm. So I am going to be asking everybody to do that. And I will post on social. Uh, my Facebook is connected to Instagram. So I will be you know, once I know that we have a launch date, I okay. will be posting and saying, okay, guys, you know, ramp up holiday sales, buy this yeah. horrible story <laughs> for all of your favorite people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for Christmas, Monica, and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's been a long journey and it's picked the scabs off of a lot of wounds, but I do take um, the reader through um, the trials. Yes. And uh, use the use the vehicle of the train going from the trials to the University of Maryland, where I was giving a speech for the sexual assault um, uh, um, symposium that they have every April, which is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And uh, to reflect back on my life and the domino effect of all mm -hmm. of the uh rapes both spiritual and emotional and psychological as well as physical from the time I was two years old mm -hmm. and my mother's weapon of war, her long red fingernail. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Well, Victoria, I appreciate it. Um, we've been doing this for about an hour and 40 minutes now, which <laughs> hard to believe. But it, very informative. Really enjoyed talking to you. Once the Thank book is released, once you finally go to trial and after that's done, I'd love to have you back on again so we can talk about it and figure out how you're going to amend the book after everything happens. So, Well, if I do write another book, I have come to the conclusion that it's going to be called Cook Gumbo, Crochet, and Write Another Song. <laughs> and 
unconditional love. Gotcha. That'll Sounds be the good. 13 years after the healing, the healing journey, you know, yeah. and peeling all the layers of healing, you know, yeah. to get to the core. Yeah. Well, that sounds fantastic. I wish you a happy Thanksgiving and Thank you. Uh, the best of luck. And uh, I'll keep watching to see where you go next. Well, I'll be watching too. Because who knows? <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> Following right. my own yellow brick road, man. Thank you very much. You have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Hey, a big thank you goes out to Victoria Valentino for joining me today as we talked about her book, Dirty Diamonds, The Repurposed Life of a Playboy Icon and Cosby Survivor. I'll be sharing information about when the book will be released on my Facebook page and also in the description of this program. So everyone, thank you very much for joining me today and thank you for being a part of The Bill Alexander Show. Thank you for listening to The Bill Alexander Show. The Bill Alexander Show is a million-dollar baby production. For more information, go to thebillalexandershow.com.